Well, um, Christianity is all about movement, okay? Movement. We can, we can trace the idea of movement all throughout the scriptures. Uh, on the first page of the Bible, we see God moving, right? God's moving. God is moving galaxies and moving stars and lands, right? Next chapter, God is moving his hands in the dirt and he's creating uh, human, human beings, right, from the dust of the ground. And so God is, is moving in that way. And then we see God beginning to call people to move, right? Noah, go move and do what? Build a boat, right? Abraham, you need to move. Go to a land. Here, I will show you. Uh, we think about Moses. I need you to move. I need you to go back to the people. Tell them I'm going to set them free. Joshua, I need you to move. I need you to move into the promised land. Lead the people into the promised land. You get to the New Testament, right? Peter, you know, end of Gospel of John says, uh, Peter, I need you to move. You need to go feed my sheep, sheep, tend, tend my lambs, right? Take care of my people. And then later in Acts, we see Paul meets Jesus, and Jesus tells him to what? Move and go plant churches, right, throughout all of the, the, uh, the Greek, the Greek uh, and Roman areas. And so we just constantly see this theme of just movement. When people come in, they meet Jesus, they're transformed, and they move. They don't stay still. They don't sit. They move, Okay. Um, and so the entire Bible really renders to us the story of God's movement through God's people in their engagement with God's world for the sake of the whole of God's creation, right? That's kind of the theme you see throughout the Bible. And there's always kind of two parts to this movement, and we'll talk about this a lot today, and, and you'll see it in the passage and in the coming weeks. There's always two aspects to this movement. There's the idea of, of, of rescue and the idea of restore. There's the idea of mission and mercy. There's evangelism and there's compassion. There's word and there's deed. There's truth, there's grace. There's gospel proclamation and what I'll call gospel neighboring, right? Coming alongside people. You see both of those aspects of movement throughout the Bible. And yet so much of Christianity today in, um, in our kind of culture has, has in some ways kind of changed in that way, has almost devolved to a faith of, uh, instead of being a faith of movement, has become predominantly a faith of the classroom, and listen, I'm, I'm pro-classroom. Right now, we're doing kind of classroom, aren't we? <laughs> you're sitting still. You're not moving. I mean, I guess you could if you want to run around a few times. I guess you could do that. Give a high five as you come by. But, um, but you know, we, we're not moving. We're in a classroom setting. So we're, we're pro-classroom. I'm not saying classroom, education of the Bible and speaking is, not, is bad at all. We're not saying that. You know that if you've been here for a while. But so much of Christianity just kind of sticks there, right? It just stays in the classroom. It stays as a sitting learning. I call it... Uh, what we tend to do is we sit, we soak, and then we sour. <laughs> we just kind of take in the information, it soaks in, all oh, that's good information, and just kind of sour, right? And a lot of that, what I mean is we kind of become like, uh, many in the church, it becomes churches of just kind of infighting and, and uh, kind of uh, over things that they, they don't like, and they're kind of picky about stuff or whatever, and there becomes this kind of disunity primarily because, honestly, we got too much time on our hands, Right? We're all sitting, looking at each other, instead of moving and getting out right, on mission and mercy, out into the community, out into seeing, meeting needs of people and proclaiming the gospel. When we're all moving the same direction out, we're not looking, staring at each other, there's not a lot to complain about, right? There's not a lot to, to pick on about. Like, we, we, we got to move. we got a mission, you see? So, so much of Christianity has stalled out, right? The gospel is going to call us to move and, and get going. And so, consider our passage, for example, uh, that was just read. Prior to this, this text here in Matthew 4, 
Uh, the only movement we see in the Gospel of Matthew is we see people like, uh, like Joseph and Mary, right? They're, they're moving with Jesus to Egypt and back, kind of fleeing. Uh, we see Jesus walking to the River Jordan there and getting baptized. We see Jesus walking earlier in chapter 4 into the wilderness where he is tempted by, by the devil. But now in this passage, if you notice when it was read, the pace kind of picks up. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of movement. Um, Think about this. This is kind of just the verbs in this, in this section. Jesus, he withdraws, he leaves, he goes, he lives, he preaches, he walks, he goes on, he calls, he goes throughout, he teaches, he proclaims, he heals, right? That's a lot of, that's a lot of movement, right? That's a lot of stuff that is going on. And then Jesus will call his people, as we'll see in this text today, to follow him in modeling that and in, in that movement, Right? Not, not necessarily just follow his teaching or follow his dogma as every other religious leader has called for their followers to do. Again, part of following Jesus is following his teaching, but it involves movement. You know what happened when, when Jesus called people to follow him? You know what happened to them? They moved. <laughs> when he called them, they moved. I mean, some of this passage here you read, and they're just like dropping the nets. Okay, we're in. Where, where do you want us to go? Right? Where are we going? Um, they, they move, just like the stars move back in Genesis chapter 1. Peter and Andrew follow him. James and John follow him. Crowds follow him. And I love how Peter, later on in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10, he, he comments on this passage about how, how what, he, what he saw there, because he was a witness of this, and how he responded. Listen to this, Acts 10, 37. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea beginning from Galilee after the baptism of, that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit with power. Okay, so we saw that in chapter 3. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we, Peter says, we, we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. So Peter is saying Jesus was moving everywhere, right? He was rescuing and restoring. He was on mission and showing mercy, um, and so, and, and we saw it, he says, and now we're witnesses and the book of Acts is them. Again, I told you this before, they're not just taking what they were, were taught by Jesus, but they're taking what they caught from Jesus, right? They, what they saw him do, they implemented and it, it was, it was um, interpreted as go plant churches. <laughs> That's what we see in the book of Acts. And so he brought them into the movement and he calls us to move as well. So the question today, not right now, but, I, but in general, are you moving, Right? Are you moving? Uh, not aimlessly, right? Not sporadically, but purposefully. Are you following Jesus with an intentionality about it, right? Do you have a mission? Do you have a plan? Are you following him and, and, and living like he lived? Uh, he was, Jesus was carrying out a plan of redemption and restoration. He's called us to take up that torch and to keep the movement going. But we have to be about both. Again, rescue and restore, mission, mercy, gospel proclamation, gospel neighboring, um, be concerned about those things. Another way to put it, maybe an imagery for you, would be like it's like two wings of the plane of the church. You got to have both wings, right? You have one wing, you're going to do this number and you're going to crash and burn, right? So you need to have both a, a, a word ministry and a deed ministry, right? You need to have that mission aspect of gospel proclamation and a mercy aspect of caring for people. You need both those wings of the plane uh, going within the church. And we'll see that in the next few chapters of Matthew. We're going to see that. Matthew 5 through 7. Is famously being called the Sermon on the Mount, right? A lot of teaching by Jesus. And then chapter 8 and following, you're going to see a lot of action. You're going to see a lot of mercy. Matter of fact, next week we're going to jump right into chapter 8. And as soon as Jesus comes down from teaching, he goes to the lowest of the low. 
He goes to a leper, right? And when no one would even be around or touch, he does. Um, and so we're going to see that balance between, again, both wings of the plane, proclaiming word, ministry, gospel, and yet deed, mercy, and compassion, right? Both of those aspects need to be happening. And so, and listen, some of you will lean towards one or the other side of that plane, okay? Um, and that's okay. That's fine. As long as the plane stays even, okay? As long as the plane keeps flying. Our spiritual gifts will cause us to lean towards one side of the plane because we have service gifts and others have teaching gifts, right? And so they'll kind of balance themselves out within a local church. Some will have gifts of mercy. Some will have gifts of teaching. And that's okay. But we, we all need to be about both in some way. We need to speak of Jesus and we need to serve like Jesus, okay? In some capacity. Um, our, our giftedness does not acquit us of the other side, okay? Um, it doesn't give us a free pass. So take whichever side, we're gonna look at both sides of the, the plane here, both wings. Take whichever side you're weak in, maybe push in a little bit today on that. It's a pretty simple outline. We're gonna look at the mission and we're gonna look at, at mercy, okay? Those are the two aspects we'll look at today. Number one, the movement of mission, okay? Beginning of this passage, we see the gospel proclamation, the word aspect happening. Verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he, speaking of Jesus, withdrew into Galilee. And this is Jesus launching what's typically called his, his public ministry, all right? This is, um, he moves to Galilee from Nazareth. If you're familiar with that, Nazareth is where he grew up for 30 years. He comes to Galilee, which was not a, a super large area of land, but it was very densely populated. Matter of fact, historians will tell us that this area of Galilee had over 200 villages, so 200, like 200 towns kind of idea. Um, each of them had about 15,000 people in them. So if you do the math on that one, that's about 3 million people. That's a, that's a very densely populated area. It's about the size of Metro Chicago, okay? So you get the idea. There's a lot of people. Uh, there was also an enormous amount of diversity um, in this area. This, uh, this area was called Galilee of the Gentiles is what it was called. Um, they called it that because it, had a, um, it was surrounded by Gentile nations. You'll see Syria mentioned here in the passage and things like that, right? They were surrounded uh, with an international trade route that went right through Galilee. So it became a very popular area, right? A lot of people travel through there. A lot of nations that were Gentile, Gentile means non-Jewish, were around, surrounded them. Look at verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of uh, Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And so here he quotes from Isaiah chapter 9. And he talks about here, the people dwelling in darkness, verse 16, have seen a great light. Those dwell in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now, why does, why does Matthew quote for us, you know, Isaiah chapter 9? Well, he's telling us about the, both the physical and the spiritual condition of the people uh, in that area. Uh, it was a place of dire need. It says they dwell in darkness, right? That's not, that's not good. It's not they were, because they were out of power. They were, they were dwelling in darkness as an idea of kind of a spiritual side to that. And this made it a place uh, of needing rescue, right? Of needing restoration, of needing word ministry and deed ministry, needing grace and truth, right? Needing gospel proclamation and gospel neighboring. And so we begin to see why Jesus would choose to start his public ministry here. He would bring a great light of hope with his words in his hands. He would deliver them from the fear of death by reversing its consequences through healing, but ultimately going through death itself, right? And coming back out the other side and bidding a way for us to come through. And so verse 17, that time Jesus began to preach. There's our word aspect, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So here's the, the movement of mission. It would take on the form of what he called, what's called here preaching. 
And the idea behind the word is the word of a herald, um, an announcer for the king. And the role of the herald or the preacher was to speak for the king his message, right, uh, with, with one of certainty and authority. It is, not, it is not the expression of one man's personal opinion. A herald is to tell the truth, or they got fired, or worse, in that culture, they could lose their head, right? You, you tell them what I said. And so we find here Jesus was a herald, a preacher. He was a man under authority. He was God, yes. He was also man. He was under the authority of the Father. That's why you read the Gospel of John. He'll say over and over again, I came to do the will of my Father, right, who's in heaven. I came to do his will, not mine. And remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Not my will, but your will be done, right? So he's a man under authority. And so he is, he's proclaiming a message of authority from the king of the universe, offering forgiveness and hope. Now, down to verse 18. By walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. So here he meets Peter and Andrew, and he tells them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. He meets two other brothers, right? Two sets of brothers, James and John. And, uh, and they're, they're called, um, and it says here in verse 22, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So Jesus' Jesus' ministry begins, right? He starts calling his, we call disciples or followers of, of him. And like, the, like with a, a startup company, you, you think maybe if you're going to start something up, it's brand new, like who are you going to get on your side? Who are you going to get to go with you? If you're going to start something new, and are, you know, maybe go knock on palace doors, Right? Go talk to kings, people of influence, politicians, or whatever in that culture that would have had a pretty large sway on the opinions of people. Right? That's where you would think you would start for something like this. Maybe get some investment bankers, right? somebody to, kind of, some, to back up your ideas. But instead, Jesus, we find, goes where we, where he, we don't expect him to go. Right? He goes to the commoner's doors, knocks on their doors. And even here, he doesn't knock on doors. He, he knocks on old boats. Right? He's, like, he's going to boats even. And so we find here that he, he goes after the people that are the, he doesn't go for the strong of the culture, quote unquote, but the weak. Not the influential, but the ordinary. Not the popular, but the unpopular. I mean, think about it. Fishermen in that culture were about as influential and as effective as Andy Reid's face mask the other Thursday night, right? Do you, no one remember that idea? I thought that was funny. No one thought that was funny. Remember, he couldn't see? Okay, anyway, if you don't know football, it doesn't mean anything. But anyway, that's how, they were not very effective at what they did, okay? They were not, in terms of political clout or social clout, right? They didn't have the opinions of people. They didn't sway people's opinion. No one wanted to hear what they had to say. They were fishermen. They were kind of way down on the totem pole of society. And so this is what God does, though. This is what Jesus does. And you're going to see this throughout the Gospel of Matthew, that Jesus' ministry is what I call subversive, what do I mean by that? Like very much under the surface, outside the, the view of, of people many times, right? He's, he's changing lives here and he's changing lives there. And slowly but surely what happens is this kind of swell builds, right, in the New Testament. And you get to Acts and you see this kind of wave start to move throughout the Roman Empire. And it's just small. It's, it's subtle, right? He's changing lives of people that no one thinks really matters, okay? And yet that is is how change begins to take place. That's how he begins to do that. Do you ever wonder why, for example, when Jesus would heal somebody and he would do something like, he would say something like, shh, don't tell anybody. <laughs> don't you read that kind of stuff and go, don't you want them to tell about you? <laughs> like, don't, don't you want people to know what you did? No, just, just, keep it, just keep it quiet, right? That's why later on in Matthew 13, Jesus gives a lot of parables. And one of them is a parable of a mustard seed. You know, a small seed gets put into the ground, unnoticed, right? Long days of nights of darkness, right? Underneath the surface, but something's happening, right? 
Life is happening, and then it sprouts, and then it grows, and it becomes a tree, he says, for the birds to rest on. That's the kingdom of God. That's the gospel going forward. That's how Jesus works. He chooses what, what is not normal for people to think. So we see Jesus here taking a stroll around the Sea of Galilee, which is more like a, like a lake. It was about 13 miles long, 8 miles wide. Uh, looking it up in Indiana, I think uh, Monroe Lake in Bloomington would be a similar kind of body of water to what the Sea of Galilee was. And as he was walking along the shoreline, he sees some fishing boats. And as he's walking along there, he, it wouldn't be strange for him to see this because um, it was the main business in the Sea of Galilee, right? It was fishermen. Um, historical accounts tell us of, at one point of some 240-plus boats were located on this body of water, right? So there's a lot of work going on in fishing. And Jesus here spies two sets of fishermen, which are also two sets of brothers. And they were cleaning up their nets, um, thus closing out a day's work. And, and it says here they, they would use nets, by the way, to catch fish. They didn't use like the pole, you know, that we use to kind of catch fish. They used it by, by a net. And so they're, they're closing up shop, and Jesus calls them to follow him. Now, this isn't the first time he's met them, okay? So I, I know in Matthew, it's the first time he's met him, but if you take all the four gospel accounts together, this is not the first time that uh, they've met Jesus. Matter of fact, uh, John chapter 1, he has already called them to believe on him in John chapter 1. This is now a second call to them, and now this call is not just to believe on him, but now to follow him, right? Let's, let's, let's get to work kind of idea. Be his witnesses, be his disciples, be his followers. We already noted now that the lack of cultural clout and influence uh, of these fishermen, but maybe you may think hearing this, maybe you know their story, maybe you don't, and you, you go, I know why Jesus chose these guys. I know why, because they are, you know, they're good old boys, never meaning no harm, right? That's, a, that's an old show you may remember. Um, you know, but they're, they're good, like, hardworking, Midwestern-type people, right? They're loyal, they're faithful, they're true, right? That, that's why he chose them. But if you read about them, you find out they're not very loyal either, okay? Um, they're, they're not that way. I mean, if you look throughout uh, the gospel, take Peter, for example. He was, he was fishing when he first met Jesus in John chapter 1, and then we find him returning back to this career again, back to fishing, again in Matthew 4 here. He leaves to follow Jesus, but Luke 5 tells us he goes back to fishing again. So he, he kind of, maybe you picture like he's always right beside Jesus, but he wasn't. There were times where he left, and he went back to doing what he used to do, um, and he went back to fishing. He repented again, followed Jesus, announced in John 13 that I will never leave you. And what does he do within like an hour he leaves, right? He runs for his life. He denies Jesus. Uh, when Jesus is resurrected, you think, oh, okay, maybe, it's, maybe it really changed then, right? When Jesus resurrected, where was, where was Peter? You know where he was? Fishing. <laughs> he's back up fishing. He's like, I guess this is over. All right, he, he died. He's not coming back to life. I'm going back to fishing. I mean, this was kind of the wavering um, of the disciples. This is kind of how they did things. But then you get to the book of Acts and things start to change, right? Peter, Peter repents, he, he turns back and he starts being bold, he starts changing, right? Even, even throughout that, uh, towards the end of his life, when they were going to kill him, they were going to crucify him, the story history tells us that he said, don't crucify me normally, turn me upside down. I can't die like my Savior did, right? I'm not worthy of that. So this guy was radically changed, right? His, he was very fickle, very up and down, right? Had to repent a lot, very much like us. Very much going back to God and being like, all right, I blew it. Please help me here. Help me put this back together again. You know, give me grace and let's, let's, let's keep going, right? I love it. He never quit. He kept fighting. He kept moving. Uh, he kept coming back again and again. And so we find that often throughout the Gospel of Matthew, the disciples were often self-centered and inhospitable. 
They, at one point, they wanted to kill all the Samaritans um, because they wouldn't let Jesus and his band go through there. Uh, they told the hungry crowds, basically, when they were hungry, they told Jesus, hey, tell them to go get their own food. <laughs> tell them to go home and get their own food. Uh, they tried to keep children from coming to Jesus. Jesus has to rebuke them. They slept when they should have been watching in the garden. Um, and, and then they, they made impulsive commitments, like, I'll never, never leave you. I'll never, never deny you. And within a few hours, they do so. These disciples are just like us, right? They need constant call and a reminder to repent, get back on mission, get back on board. That's because it's so easy to get back into the mindset of the world of getting our own and making it in, in this life. And it's so easy to get into survival mode and just go back to quote-unquote fishing. That's what Peter did. He went back to what was comfortable, back to what he knew, back to what he was good at, and kind of just got back into that mode. That's true for us, right? We, in our current world, COVID-19 world, right, it's very easy to kind of just get into survivor mode and just kind of coast and lose sight of the mission that God has called us to. But here's the encouraging part. God is always going against the counsel of the world, right? Which says to discard the broken, the, fa the failures, the useless, and look for somebody else. Consider the Bible how God is always choosing people to advance his mission and preach his gospel. If you go throughout the book of Genesis, for example, it's the second-born Abel instead of first-born Cain that God chose. It was second-born Isaac instead of first-born Ishmael that God chose. It was second-born Jacob. Right? Instead of firstborn Esau that God chose. It was an idolater in Abraham that God chose, an adulterer in, in David that God chose. It was women who were in that culture that were barren or unloved that God chose. It was the older people the society cast aside that God chose. Think about it. God chose to use, I think it's interesting, God chose in the Old Testament to use a donkey, a jawbone, a slingshot, a poor teenage girl, a little boy with a lunch, you know, a fish. And, and bread, right? I mean, he, he uses things that people don't think, cultures and think should be used. And God has called us to be used of him, to be his ambassadors, to be his representatives. You say, what does that look like? What does that look like? And Jesus gives a very important picture here. And he calls us to be fishers of what? Men, right? Be fishers of men. You know, what, does that, what does that mean? What does that look like? Verse 19, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. There's a lot of things that can be pulled out of that imagery for a second, but let me give you five. I'm trying to be practical. Sometimes Chris gets criticized for not being practical, so let's be practical for a moment here. Let's think through this. Like, what does it look like to, be, to, to fish, right? And you're probably saying, like, really, you're going to teach me about fishing? I like to fish, okay? I like to hike. I don't like camping. Don't equate those two, all right? I can fish and not hike. I fish and not camp, sorry, or RV for that matter, anything to do with those things. But think about this, all right? Some, some, some parallels, okay? Number one, fishing requires great patience and perseverance. I think that's a good analogy, right? You throw out a line, you know, in, our, in our situation, you wait. You throw it out again, and you wait. Or if you're doing fly fishing right, you're out, back in, out, back in, out, back in. You're just constantly doing this same thing over and over and over again. And many times, sometimes, at least, many times, you catch nothing, right? Matter of fact, Luke's account of this situation tells us, he gives a little bit more insight on this and says that the, the disciples that previous night had been fishing and caught nothing, right? They had caught nothing all night long. Um, but fishermen keep going out. They, they keep throwing out the line. They keep dropping the nets. They keep persevering, right? They keep going at it. They keep going after people. They continue to pray for people, right? Some of you have friends, loved ones who don't know Jesus and haven't known Jesus for a very long time. Persevere. Keep throwing the line out. Right? Keep fishing, as it were. Keep loving. Keep praying. Um, I've told you the story before, but for me, like my, my Aunt Betty, 
or Aunt Betty, depends on how you want to say that, where you're from in the country, I call it Aunt, Aunt Betty. And uh, Aunt Betty um, prayed for me for my entire life until I was 18 years old, until I came to Christ. She prayed for me, she said, the moment she knew I was in my mom's womb, she prayed for me um, every single day. And when I went to her and told her I'd come to Christ at 18, because I was, I was one of your least likely of people to do that. Uh, I didn't grow up in church. And so when I went to her, I mean, she just cried, right? I mean, she's like, I've been, I didn't know that at the time. I've been praying for you every day for the last 18 years, right? I mean, don't give up on that. Keep fishing, right? Keep throwing the line out. Keep dropping the net. And you, there'll be lots of days, nights, months, weeks, years. Nothing happens, right? But God, God is at work. Continue to be faithful in that. Um, there'll be lots of discouragement, right, on mission. We must keep at it. Number two. Jesus calls us to go fishing, not hunting. It's an important analogy, okay? Fishing, not hunting. Some Christians resemble, uh, sound more like hunters than fishermen. The analogy is significant here. The art of, there's an art to fishing, right? Fish are drawn, okay? It's not like noodling for those monstrous catfish things. You know, you like shove your hand down in their throat and hope they bite it and you pull them out of the water. That's the weirdest thing. If you guys do that, I would love to go watch. I don't want to do it. But if you do it, I would love to go watch this stuff. Um, that would be very interesting. But, uh, but, you know, it's interesting. Peter gives good counsel in his first letter. He says he talks about us speaking with gentleness and respect. Paul in Colossians talks, our, talks about our speaking to be seasoned with salt. Right? It's a good imagery there. Uh, the mission is not to shoot people. <laughs> the mission is to win people. Right? So be very careful on what you say or what you type. Right? That's probably more careful these days is, is the typing aspect. Be very careful of your bashing, your criticism, or your platforming, especially in things like politics, which are very divisive in our country. Because you might win an argument, and you might be right, but you might also lose an audience, okay? So you've got to consider those things. We're not hunting, we're fishing, okay? Number three, the church is like a fishing boat, not a cruise ship. Not a cruise ship. Someone once put it this way. They said uh, the church is a, is like, should be like a hospital for sinners instead of a, a museum for saints, Right? That's what it's supposed to be like. In the same way, the church is, again, a fishing boat, not a, not a cruise ship. This means uh, it's going to stink at times because, you know, you go fishing, that's what happens. Fish stink. Cruise ships are all about convenience and comfort. They go out at, the, at times when people want to go out, right? You can pay their money and go out with them. Uh, they hug the shoreline so that people can enjoy the view. They're, they're well, at least used to be very safe <laughs> uh, until this year. Uh, but fishing boats are entirely different, okay? They make sacrifices, uh, there, there's very little comfort involved. It's, it's, uh, it's easier and much more comfortable to have a ministry about us that fits our schedule. But Jesus does not say, follow me and I'll take you on a delightful cruise. He says, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, right? It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard, which gives me my, my fourth point here. Fishing is hard and sometimes dangerous. You ever watch the, like one of these shows like Deadliest Catch, you know, um, where they, uh, they go to the Bering Sea and they try to uh, catch crab fishing can be one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. Also, the best fishing is sometimes in the most difficult waters. Um, I, I think it's interesting in our culture, and some people think I'm crazy when I say this, and you may think I'm crazy when I say this, but I, I think the current like upheaval in our country is a good thing in a sense. I love it because it's just, it's just going to make the gospel that much more clear. It's going to make it harder for mission, right? But in, in, in many ways, Christendom, right, which is a culture of uh, that's basically ruled the world for the last thousand years has fallen apart, right? That's basically, Christendom is kind of like church membership applied to society as a whole. Like what's required to be a member of a church should be required for all people in the culture to kind of be part of that. Um, same requirements for being a member 
uh, of a church is a requirement for being a member of good standing in the country. And that's what happens with Christianity marries politics. And if you go look at church history, you'll find that didn't ever, had never worked out well for the gospel, right? It may have made things more Christian-like, but it didn't help anything with the gospel, right? You can go to, go to Europe and see when the church married, you know, the, married the government. It didn't go well for, for the gospel. A lot of cultural Christianity becomes the case where they think they're Christians because of the rules they keep or because they have some semblance of Christianity around them. The mission of the church in America is going to get harder, and it's going to get more dangerous, and that's exactly where history shows us where the gospel actually makes an impact, where people's lives are transformed and changed because it becomes very clear, right? So yeah, it is, it is hard. It is dangerous work. Lastly, number five, uh, good fishermen keep themselves out of sight. Anyone who goes fishing on a boat knows you can't go yelling and screaming and, and blaring uh, music, right? Uh, you, you also won't catch fish by calling them, right? You can't say, here, fishy, fishy, fishy. It doesn't work that way, right? They're not going to jump in the boat and be like, yes, you called me. Like, it doesn't work that way. You've got to be quiet. You've got to get yourself out of the way. That's the whole lure, bait, the whole idea. Um, you've got to stay quiet. You have to work at not being seen. And that's the way it is for us on mission. Our goal is to get ourselves out of the way. It's not about us. Don't take it personally. You get rejected um, or maligned or mocked for the sake of the gospel, right? Don't, don't take it personally. It's not about you. You're trying to get yourself out of the way and get Jesus in the spotlight. It's not about us, all right? So that's the mission, uh, the, the movement of mission. Let's look at the second part of this passage and look at the movement of mercy. So we've seen one side, one wing of the plane. Let's look at the other side of that plane to keep this balanced out and moving forward. So movement of mercy, verse 23. It says, he went throughout Galilee, teaching their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so um, he goes to the synagogues, notice, instead of going to palaces or government buildings or even going to the temple in Jerusalem. He does visit the temple. We'll see that later. <laughs> it doesn't go well for them when he visits the temple. Um, but he's going here to the synagogues. Why the synagogues? Because there was, o- there was only one temple, first of all. There were many synagogues. That's why it says it's plural here in the passage. There were synagogues all throughout Galilee, different towns. Each one had one. And so they were dispersed throughout the different cities and towns of the nation of Israel. And they started in captivity as a way for the people of God to gather together, because they couldn't be at the temple, to gather together to sing, pray, read the scriptures. A lot of the model of a service today is even modeled after the original kind of synagogue idea. So if you're wondering where all this format came from, that's pretty much where it came from, at least the... The, uh, the outline of it. And so it was also a place where people would come with questions. It's where people, when they had needs or they were broken, they were hurting, they knew they could come to that synagogue to find help, right? And so that was kind of the why Jesus went to those. So he went to every kind of local synagogue. Again, very subversive um, because you think he'd, he'd, uh, he'd, he'd set up shops somewhere else maybe. Maybe he'd set up his own building, right? Big steeple kind of idea. But he goes to synagogues and he gets their Bible. He starts reading it about himself, right? Um, he... He starts to proclaim the kingdom, meaning he was proclaiming that the king has arrived, and he's starting to bring his kingdom to bear upon the lives of people, putting things back the way they were supposed to be, which is really what the miracles were pointing to, right? Uh, the miracles like healing, that's what they were all about. They weren't just for showing people, hey, I'm God, um, because if that's, what it, if that's all they were for, he could have done uh, a lot more wow miracles, right? He could have, done, could have flew around the Sea of Galilee a few times, right? He could have shot fireballs from underneath his sleeve. I mean, he could have done gone spidey and climbed the side of the wall. I don't know. He could have done all kinds of things that we think are like, whoa, that's miraculous, right? But his miracles weren't like that, were they? They were restorative in nature. They were, they were picturing what the ultimate kingdom will be like, right? He made eyes see again. He made legs walk again. 
He made, made people's minds sane again, right? I mean, he, he went through, he was restored things back to the way they originally were supposed to be, but also pointing to the future when there won't be any more of that. When he, when he resurrected someone from the dead, that, that was picturing one day that death would no longer be there, right? That's what he was doing. And so that was the objectives of his miracles, and they would be carried on by his disciples. Um, N.T. Wright mentions this. He says, talking about the resurrection, he says, the message of the resurrection teaches us that the world matters, that the injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it's only about me and find a, per- a new dimension in my personal life. That's what a lot of our culture thinks of Christianity as. It's just a personal me, me thing. He says, but if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead bodily, not just spiritually, but bodily, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world, news which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't about warming hearts. Easter means that in a world where injustice and violence and degradation are endemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such things. Take away Easter, take away the resurrection, and Karl Marx was probably right to accuse Christianity of ignoring problems of a material world. Take it away, and Freud was probably right to say Christianity is just wish fulfillment. Take it away, and, and Nietzsche probably was right to say it was for wimps. Right? He's saying, like, Christianity, the resurrection means that the world matters. The body matters. I mean, Jesus didn't rise as a ghost. He rose in a body. His miracles were, were addressing the body of people, right? Addressing their minds, their bodies. He was going after that aspect. And so Jesus was about both of those things. Again, proclamation, word, and deed. Um, his miracles of healing, casting out demons, were to point to what would one day be true of the world. Verse 24, his fame, it says, spread throughout all Syria, so it's in the, even in Gentiles' area. They brought him all the, all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains. They oppressed those who were oppressed by demons. It goes on and on here, verse 25, the crowds followed him all over the place. So word gets out, right? Word gets out to people. You can imagine word. There, there was no social media accounts or phones or anything like that, right? No mail. Just word is spreads, word, word of mouth. Hey, this, this guy preaches pretty good, right? This guy, is, uh, he's casting out demons, like, he, he's healing people with no copay payment required, right? We'll call it Jesus care, right? I mean, it's happening for everybody. And next thing you know, there's, a, there's crowds of people, and there's a, there's a lot of people coming, right? And they have people coming to Jesus and being like, hey, can you, can you pray for me, right? Can, can you teach me? Can you heal me? Hey, I got this hanging out. Can you get rid of that for me, right? I mean, there's, they're asking who knows what kind of questions they're asking, but they're asking a bunch of them. And Jesus doesn't, doesn't get time to take a nap here, right? He doesn't get time for, for a meal a lot of times, Everyone's coming, this is exhausting, but it's all part of that mission and all part of mercy. And people tried to, people tried to get him to move. They tried to, cha- they tried to get him to champion their cause. He tried to get them to, hey, jump on Rome, let's get rid of those Romans, all right, let's do that, right? They, um, they, they tried to get him to, as it were, take his talents to South Beach, right? And um, yeah, we're going to leave this area, we're going to go to where the big city is, and we're going to go there, go in Jerusalem and do it, but he didn't. Instead, we find him going throughout villages and rural areas here, healing and casting out demons. He was helping the poor and the helpless instead of frequenting the palaces and courts of those who felt they had it all together. Jesus was going to people who had need. You see, so how do I go about doing kingdom work of mercy? You know, we talked about the word. How do I do the deed aspect? You know, I, I don't know about you, Chris, but I, I can't heal anybody. Like the only miracle I have is I get up in the morning, I take a shower, brush my teeth, and I put on deodorant, and that is a miracle, right? That is a miracle. You're like, well, this, that's, the, uh, that's the only miracle I can do here. So what do I do? I can't implement a lot of what Jesus did. Well, let me give you a couple of them. Number one, let me say this. Just look around you. 
Look around you. Jesus brings healing to people because he saw them. He looked around him at the needs around him. He also placed himself in places where there was need. Seeing, right, brings compassion. Seeing brings compassion. And so slow down. Look around you. Uh, maybe take a walk around your neighborhood. Maybe take a you know, long lunch break at work and just take a walk. Walk around. See people uh, in that sense. Uh, this is what uh, Robert Murray McShane was a pastor of in Scotland back in the 1800s, and he, he, he made a habit to walk around. And, and look at this one time how he felt convicted walking around. He said, I made my rounds to some of the most miserable habitations I ever beheld, such scenes I never before dreamed of. Ah, uh, why am I such a stranger to the poor of my native town? I have passed their doors thousands of times. I have admired the huge black piles of building with their lofty chimneys breaking the sun's rays. Why have I never ventured within? How dwells the love of God in me? What embedded masses of human beings are huddled together, unvisited by friend or minister? No one cares for our souls, is written over every forehead. Wow. Awake, my soul, he says. Why should I give hours and days any longer to the vain world when there is so much world of misery at my very door? Lord, put your own strength in me. Confirm every good resolution. Forgive my past long life of uselessness and folly. That's a great prayer. Right, that, that's powerful. And I love, I love that imagery. What he, what he saw was it was like no one cares for our souls was on their foreheads. Right? How did he see that? He just went walking. <laughs> he slowed down. He looked. Number two, I would say another practical thing is assess your gifts. Determine what you're good at and what you enjoy and use those gifts to help people in need. If you're, if you're good with your hands, then go help fix stuff, right? If you like to read, go read to kids. You have ability to drive, go, go help people who maybe can't drive, have no means of driving to get them to places. Find things you can do. We all can do something within our community to meet needs that are right there before us. You don't have to have a you know, great amount of giftedness or all those things. Find something you're good at, that you enjoy, that you can do, and find where you can meet that need. Frederick Bucher put it this way. says, your calling is found where your deep gladness, okay, what, what, what makes you happy, and the world's deep hunger meet, right? So where there's a great need and what makes you, what makes you happy in doing and meeting needs, you meet those two together, you find your calling. You find where God wants you at that moment. Number three, ask others. Ask your neighbors, coworkers, friends, what they, what they need help with. Ask them if they have someone they know that has needs. If you don't have anything, then ask your, ask your church family if they know somebody who knows somebody who has need, right? Look outside the normal circles of influence you have and just start asking questions. A lot of times we, do, we, don't, we say we don't have anybody to serve, we have nothing to do. We don't ask questions. There's lots of need, right? There's lots of need out there. Number four, last one I'll say is, is volunteer. This is low-hanging fruit here, but I'll say like just for us. Uh, talk to, to Monica and helping at the storehouse, right? Talk to Rod about helping in the park. Um, talk to Justin about helping children's ministry. Find, find, there's needs. There's plenty of needs. Just ask the right people. You know, visit, visit someone who is unable to get out of their house, right? Take flowers to a retirement home. Volunteer at the rescue mission downtown. We as pastors are even met this week. Like, we're, we're working on ways to help you, give you things in ways that you can serve, because that's part of our role is to kind of try to help you as best we can. And so there's more to come on that, but we're continuing to work on that for you. And here's the thing. Again, these two wings of the church have to stay in balance. We're going ha- to crash and burn if we don't do both. We need mission and we need mercy. We need word, we need deed. Gospel proclamation, gospel neighboring. Um, if we don't show mercy as a church, 
there will be no mission field to hear you. And if you don't preach the gospel, then you'll just be putting a Band-Aid and making things more comfortable for people in the way to help, right? I mean, you got to have both of those aspects. And listen, the reason that we sit here today with this gospel story, with this Bible that we can read and look at and understand and know Jesus, the reason we have these things is because the early church did these things, right? They kept those two in balance. They had word and they had deed. Um, I, I keep telling you this story, and I mean, you're going to be like, oh, I've heard this story before. I'm going to keep telling you the history of the church because it's important you understand where we came from, how we got here, and how the church did it so we can see how we do it. Um, I've told you this before. 350 AD, right? Christianity became the majority of the Roman Empire like that. Completely blew up, right, in the Roman Empire. Why? Because there was, there was mercy and there was mission. There was proclamation and service. Plagues swept through the Roman Empire. Everyone who would, didn't have the plague, kind of, you'll find some parallels here. Everyone who didn't have the plague ran for their lives, isolated themselves from everybody else and ran for the hills. Doctors and nurses left, right? Families, relatives left. If they were sick, they just left their people behind. When all the dust settled, when people were running for their life, the only people left in the Roman Empire were basically those who were sick with the plague and Christians. They stayed. And guess what happened? When the, when the plague was all done, when all that was done, guess what happened to the Roman Empire? Those who were there that were helped by Christians not only got help. I mean, they didn't have, a, it talks about in history, like they just gave them water, place to stay, right, a pillow or something. I mean, they, they didn't really have a lot of means of doing medical work, but they just were there for them. They were present. And when it was all over, you know what those people did? They go like, now tell me about this, Jesus. <laughs> right? So, I mean, they, they, the, the deed ministry of it brought about a word ministry as a result. I love this. One of the pastors, Dionysus, said this during this, during, he was a pastor during this time in Rome. He said, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves, thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them, departed this life serenely happy, so they, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and caring others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Probably have to listen too closely to hear that. Did you, did you hear the gospel? <laughs> did you hear it lived out right there? That last line, they transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. That's exactly what Jesus did for them, right? They just implemented what they knew Jesus did for them, they did for others. It's because Jesus took their death onto, onto himself and died in their stead that they could go out and implement and do the same. They, they weren't afraid of death anymore, you see. De death had transformed for them. They knew that, that he had made him who knew no sin to be sin on their behalf so that they could become the righteousness of God in him. And the church became such a staple in the community, in, in, in the Roman Empire, that it made people mad. This is one of my favorite quotes from church history. One of the emperors of Rome at the time, the emperor, got really upset at the Christians. Like, he was upset with them. He, he said this. He called them Galileans. You know, that's where Jesus started his ministry. Remember Galileans? He called them irre irre irreverent Galileans. That was kind of a pejorative term at the time. These irreverent Galileans not only feed their own poor, but ours as well. <laughs> Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. They are welcoming them into their agape. That was a, kind of a feast they would have. They attract them as children are attracted with cakes. <laughs> While the pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity and by a display of false compassion, he says, have established and given effect to their pernicious errors. See their love feasts, their tables spread for the needy. Such practice is common among them and causes a contempt for our gods. Wow. 
That was such a reputation they had in the community that the, the, unbelie- the, the emperor was upset that the church was having such, he was, he was, he was very upset of what they were doing. It was also common at the time that, that, that the prisons were filled with people who, not like our, our culture, they had no food, they had no clothing. If, if someone didn't take care of them, they would die in these prison cells. But that's where, guess who you'd find there? You'd find Christians. That's where they'd be. And even, not even those in jails, but those who had needs, they, in the mornings, would go to the jails. Not to visit people in jail. You know why they went? That's where Christians are. I know if, there's, if people are in need, that's where Christians are going to be. It just became culturally the known fact that that's where Christians are. If people are in need, that's where they are. I need help. I'm going to go see them. And it, it totally transformed. Rodney Stark, a uh, church historian, said, said this. He said, the city is filled with the homeless and impoverished. Christianity offered charity as well as hope. The city is filled with newcomers and strangers. Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. The city is filled with orphans and widows. Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. The city is torn by violent ethnic strife. Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And the city is faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes. Christianity offered effective nursing services. They were the ones who started the hospitals. Most hospitals were started by them, right? Again, this only happens with gospel confidence, that you know who Jesus is and what he has done, and it propels you forward because why? Because you're not afraid of death. You're not afraid um, of the rejection of people, and you're also not prizing comfort and ease and money and power over the needs of people. That's our call. Today, if you'll notice in front of you, we're bringing back communion, okay? We're trying to get back to normal as quick as we can, right? As, as, safe, as safe as we can. And so you'll see in front of you, um, Parkside, you'll see there's little cups self-contained right there, right? There's bread and juice in them. Just want to draw, draw your attention to that because it's going to be a little bit different this morning. If you're new with us, here's what we do. So we normally take communion at tables. We're not going to do that. This is, a, we feel, a safer way of doing it. Everything's self-contained for you right there. And so what we, what we do is we're going to take some quiet time. We'll stop talking and we're going to have some silence. This is your opportunity um, for everyone to just kind of talk to God. You may have not talked to God a very long time. You may have never talked to God. But I assure you, he'll listen, okay? And take some time to kind of reflect on these two wings of the plane, right? Mercy and mission, you know, deed and, and word. And reflect on um, maybe what, which, which side you need to push in on, right? Maybe you're uncomfortable with one of those sides. Okay, God, help me in this. Show me how I can do this, right? If you need to repent, repent. If you need to ask God of some request God, then request, right? So search your heart, know God, be made right with God this morning, Okay? If you're, if you're a follower of Christ, and there's bread and there's juice. Now listen, this stuff's not magical, okay? There's nothing magical about it. It is literally processed bread and juice, okay? It's a self-container, nothing special. But it is, a, it is a moment to take and to remember, okay? That's what it's for. Jesus told us to do so. Do this in remembrance of me. We take the bread, we take the juice. To remember a very tangible piece, to remember that Jesus really, he really did suffer. And he really did bleed, and he really did die, and he really rose again. And this has helped me remember that my salvation, my, my being made right with God, cost God his life, okay? And so reflect on that and our position before him in that. If you're not a Christian, do not take, take the communion. If you're a Christian and you're struggling, you don't feel like you're ready for that, don't take it, right? This is not an automatic thing that you, like, just automatically take it. Process, work through it, talk to God, reflect um, and, then, and then turn and take communion when you're ready. Okay, so we'll give you some time. Now we'll pray, give you some quiet to spend with God. When you're ready, you may take, take communion if, if you're ready. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the example we see here in Matthew 4 
of the ministry of Jesus, again, both in word um, and deed, both in proclamation uh, and neighboring in many ways. Um, God, I pray that you would help us as a church corporately to have our plane balance out, that, God, we would, we would preach the gospel as we have always done, um, that, God, we would continue to press forward in that word ministry and do that with excellence. At the same time, God, that we would press hard into service, to serve our community, to make you known, um, to be the feet, hands and feet of Jesus and not just the mouth of Jesus to our, to our community. Um, God, help us, guide us and lead us in that. Um, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.